0: Okay, Shalom. So, um like I mentioned, instead of giving a parsha class this week, I'm going to use this platform to give a sermon for Rosh Hashanah which I will later send out so that people can hear it. All I ask please is do not listen to this sermon on Rosh Hashanah. It is prohibited to use any electronics on Rosh Hashanah. So please listen to it before or after. And um, thank you for that. So the first sermon is titled, A Rosh Hashanah of Democracy, Understanding God's Monarchy. So I'm going to start with a story. A story of someone who many of you may know, you may have heard some of his lectures, um, participated in his high holiday programs. Uh, He's a Chabad rabbi who's called Rabbi Manis Friedman. Now, I heard this story from Rabbi Manus Friedman directly. And uh, just that so you know, Rabbi Manus Friedman is often approached in seeking personal advice due to his vast knowledge of Hasidic teachings, and more importantly, how to apply them to healthier healthier, and better living. So many stories that he has is about people coming to him with relationship issues, Uh, parents, children, spouses, I'm going to share with you a story that I heard from him about a woman who approached him about uh, helping her out to have a healthier marriage. Now, um, this woman approached him, and as is oft the case, you know, once you get into the kvetching mode, you know, kvetching, Jewish favorite pastime, just to complain, so, you know, you start off with serious issues, and then it just rolls and rolls and rolls. And before long, you're coming up with complaints that, you know, we say in Hebrew, there are things that really have nothing what to do with it. You're just rolling into a complaint. And, and also this, and, and also that, and especially if you're finding out that some of your complaints, you have to look at yourself. you got to come up with another complaint about the other. So at some point, she just rolls herself from complaint after complaint into the following complaint. She says to Rabbi Friedman, yeah, but he is so not mushy. Meaning that her husband is not the mushy style. Now, Rabbi Friedman knew this woman well. She was a student of his prior. And he said to her, really, Marsha? You want your husband to be mushy? You wouldn't know what to do with yourself if he ever got mushy on you. That just isn't who you are. Now, why am I sharing with you this specific story? Because, my friends, many times we read, we read novels, and we watch television and movies, and we witness what others define as the only necessary element in a loving relationship. And what happens when we watch these movies and read these novels and watch other people, you know, judging our insides by their outsides. And uh, what we do is we allow for another person's psyche to define for us what our personal emotional needs in a relationship should be. And that's what this woman did you know, reading so many novels and so watching so many movies and glorifying the man who's mushy to his wife. So all of a sudden she decided that, you know, I need that and I don't have that in my marriage. And the Rabbi Friedman pointed out to her, why would you do that? Why would you let someone else define their needs as your needs? That's not who you are. You're more a left brainer. You're more a different type of woman. Really, it's not for you, this mushiness. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Everyone wants to have, you know, romantic, intimate moments. But there's mushy, romantic, intimate moments. And there's non mushy. And not everyone does well with the mushy. But yet, when we see someone else experiencing it, and the grass is always green on the other side, we decide that we need mushiness in our life, in our love relationship. Now, what happens is that we negate our own needs when we allow other people to define their needs in a relationship as the true needs that makes up a relationship. Now, this is not only true about us in our relationships with our spouses, um, our significant others, our children, our parents. You find that often, you know, you hear people or you watch people. Oh, my child or my parent is my best friend. And you think, oh, wow, I would like to have that relationship. And the truth is, no, you wouldn't. You know, I'll be honest with you. I once told my child, you have five billion potential friends. You have one father and don't switch that around. You know, I'm, I'm your father and, and utilize that as a relationship because, you know, you have everyone else who can be just your friend who you can just joke around with or, or you know, kibitz and even be a little bit disrespectful. Um, not with me. So we look at others and we see and we decide that's what I want. When if we give a good look at who we are, we'll see clearly that's not what we want. Now, I want to take this specifically into the relationship we have with our higher power, our relationship we have with God. And, you know, we listen to, you know, modern psychology. Uh, we listen to other, other cultures And it seems to be that the only important thing to have in a relationship with God is intimate love. And that's it. And we talk about, for example, fear of God, which is one of the 613 commandments. We look at it, no, 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 that's not what we need in our relationship with God. We just need love. Or when we talk about obedience. No, 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 that's not. We we have a father-son, father-daughter relationship. This isn't about obedience. And what happens is that when we look at other people and hear them talk about their spirituality in which there exists this mushy love between them and their higher power, them and their God, and then we say, oh, that's what I want and that's the only thing that I need in my relationship, what we're actually doing is we're denying ourselves our personal psyche makeup. Because many of us, many of us need to have this notion of beyond love, there's an awe and there's a fear. And beyond working things out with God, there's obedience. And that's part of our psyche. Our human psyche needs that with our higher power. And yet we'll just delete all of that because we started reading this new Kumbaya stuff that talks about, no, God is all about love and love and that's all you need. You need to love God and God, you need to feel God's love for you. And truth be said, we're denying a holistic relationship that I personally, with my psyche, need with God. Now, understanding that, from there, I want to get into the Rosh Hashanah experience. So, in the teachings, every holiday is a gateway to a journey with a very specific destiny. For example, Passover is the holiday of liberation from inner bondage, outer bondage. Um, you know, at Yom Kippur is the holiday of being able to experience doing teshuvah, asking forgiveness, receiving forgiveness. Every holiday has dear journey. Now, Rosh Hashanah, what is the goal of Rosh Hashanah? What do we want to accomplish in the holiday of Rosh Hashanah? And more specifically, as we're soon going to see, that the journey of every holiday is through the service of that holiday. So what is the journey of high holiday services? Now, to understand that, you know, many will judge, and and I have it all the time as a rabbi, and, and the challenge I have as a rabbi is not to feed into what people think they need from their high holiday services, you know, it's like, oh my God! A rabbi gave such a sermon, and I cried at Yisker. Rabbi, that was out of the park. Who says that a Yisker sermon and a Yisker is meant to have you cry? So you know, I, it, the rabbi's challenge is to to kind of feed what the people need more than what they want or want to need or think they need. So many people will judge their high holiday services. By a couple of things. A, was I inspired? If I wasn't inspired, there was no, it wasn't a good service. Another thing is that I feel intimately close with God. If somehow in the services and the singing and the sermon, in the ambiance, I didn't feel intimately close to God, eh, services aren't the way they used to be. And mind you, some actually will judge their service by being proud of their endurance for how long they were able to hang out at the service. Which takes me actually to a cute little story of Little Sammy. Little Sammy on the high holidays was standing in the synagogue's lobby looking at the plaques honoring the people of the community. Who have fallen in battle in the armed forces? The synagogue had a special plaque. There was a lot of people from the community that went to the armed forces, and you know to protect our democracy. And amongst them, there were those who have fallen, and they were honoring them. So the rabbis watching Sammy's interest in these plaques, and he uses the opportunity to start a dialogue. And he say, he approaches Sammy and he asks him, Sammy, do you know? what you're looking at. And then he goes on to explain that these are the people who died in service. And little Sammy's eyes opened up wide like saucers. And he asked the rabbi, in which services, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? So really, there's very different experiences of the service. What I'm here to talk about is what is the intended purpose of a service so what is the goal and in order to know i'll give you a little secret in if you ever want to know what is the primary goal of a jewish holiday turn to the amida central prayer of the holiday now all amidas from a regular working day to a shabbat to a holiday have the same opening three blessings, and the same closing three blessings. It's the central blessing which will tell you what the destiny, what the journey of any specific day or holiday is. So every day we have 13 central blessings asking God for all the different things. God grant me knowledge. God grant me the power to do repentance. God heal me. Um, So forth and so on. On Rosh Hashanah, there's only one central blessing. And it's the same central blessing every single service, night, morning, afternoon service. Now, I want to read to you one line from that prayer. That's how it opens and that's how it closes. The opening is as follows. Our God and God of our fathers reign over the entire world reign r-e-i-g-n not rain as r-a-i-n reign over the entire world in your glory and then it ends blessed are you god king over the whole earth well there you have it now we understand the journey of rosh hashanah is about experiencing god as our king and so much and obviously king of the entire universe and so much so that in this central blessing of Rosh Hashanah, we do not even say avinu malkainu, my father, our father, our king. We only talk about Meloich from the word melech, king. Be our king. That's what it's all about. Now, you know, father, parent, mother, we're talking more intimacy more warmth, more love, you know, the type of relationship that's very supportive. And over here, we're talking about, no, the central theme of Rosh Hashanah is not about making God our father, but making him our king. Now, I want to point out that nevertheless, in Hasidic teachings, we focus on the intimacy of Rosh Hashanah, in which I want to quote to you the words from Kabbalah, And from Hasidus, which means that the spark, which is our soul, is close to the mother flame, which means God. So we're talking about a closeness. We're talking about an intimacy. And Hasidus goes on to emphasize over and over again that Rosh Hashanah, the days after Rosh Hashanah, culminating with yom kippur we should focus on a special prayer that we say every day and that is psalm 131 and it says as follows i quote to you the verse out of the depths i call to you O god and kabbalah hasidah says that every human being has an outer heart and an inner heart the outer heart is driven by an external force Either the mind understands, the lust wants, but the notion of the the outer heart, what drives it to want what it wants, is not from the inner essence being, but some external factor which is driving it. But then there's the inner heart. The inner heart doesn't work on the input of any external senses or teachings. It works on what it is from the very inside out. On top of that, as I mentioned to you about the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, we're taught that in the depths of depths, inner heart, depths of depths, there is 10 depths. And that's why every single day we have to go deeper and deeper into ourselves and from there call out to God with ultimate intimacy and closeness so what's going on here on one hand i share with you that rosh hashanah is all about being obedient and accepting god as my king and what all that means to accept a king on the other hand what we're saying here is that it's all about this inner heart intimacy which gives what is rosh hashanah really all about now before i answer that question i want to first talk about this whole monarchy issue you know we are children of democracy and even though we have here uh with us some uh people that come from countries that had dictatorship but i want to focus that right now you know everyone online is here in america and we really are products of democracy So from that perspective, I must tell you that whenever we get into this God being a king, it doesn't digest easily. When you talk about God being our father, that makes sense. But this notion of God being a king, I mean, we evolved. We're we're no more into this monarchy king stuff. You know, We're, we're democracy. So much so, That the only way, if you think about what is, for most Jewish people that I've come across, High Holidays is very much this song of Avinu Malkeinu. We remember it. It's beautiful. Whenever you sing it, it already transports you back to Rosh Hashanah. Avinu Malkeinu, Avinu Malkeinu. We open the ark, we sing it. And those words mean our father, our king. And truth be said, you know, the attitude we have with God is, okay, if you're willing to first be of Vinu, my father, then I'll also accept your Malkinu, our king. But the democracy with the understanding that God is a king is not that easy. and And we need to understand this. So I want to share with you a story that happened with a very famous Chassid. He actually also ended up being the secretary of the previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchel Lubavitch. He, he was able to sit in meditation for six hours in prayer. <laughs> That's not, uh, you know, 60 seconds is a big feat. And he, when he learned about the whole story of the government, the Bolsheviks overthrowing, and the Tsar Nicholas II abdicated his throne, he responded the following, Oy, we lost a metaphor in Hasidus for malchut, for kingship. In other words, he saw it as a bad thing. You know, it, understanding God, who's a king, is by understanding a king down here. That's our relationship. Now, who am I to disagree with a scholar and a Hasid of such stature? But I'm going to do it anyway. The older and weaker metaphor, I believe, of a king was replaced by a far newer and greater metaphor, that of democracy and an elected president. Now, I say this with certainty based on Hasidic teachings, that everything that takes place in this world is but a reflection of what is taking place in heaven. Especially so, When we talk about royalty, and I quote to you the saying from the Talmud that says, royalty on earth is like royalty in the heavens. Any form of royalty that exists here on planet earth is nothing more than a reflection of the royalty that exists in heaven. And therefore, if royalty on earth, and specifically that of the world power has revealed itself as one appointed in the process of democracy, then this too must be a reflection of malchut, royalty, as it is in heaven. And thus, I'm going to suggest that we actually today have a far greater metaphor of royalty and God being a king specifically Because God has gifted us with this divine blessing of democracy. However, to appreciate this, we must first take a deeper look into what malchut, kingship, is. And why this is the ultimate manifestation of God's relationship with us. And in order to do this, the first thing we're going to have to do is, we're going to have to put aside everything we know about monarchy throughout the history of mankind. You know, if we're going to have come up in memory, Bloody Mary as the queen, you know, we're going to not understand what monarchy means in heaven. We're just understanding what monarchy means when it falls here on earth. So let us look at monarchy, not through what we remember in history of kings and queens, but let us look through the eyes of the deepest teachings in Kabbalah and the Torah. Now, I shouldn't say and, the Kabbalah part of the Torah. So let's talk about Malchut. Malchut is kingship. In Kabbalah and Hasidism, there are two seemingly opposing dimensions to a king, which in turn create two opposing dimensions within monarchy as it is here on earth. One dimension of a king is extrapolated from the story of the first Jewish king. The first Jewish king was King Saul, appointed by samuel the prophet now the verse actually gives a description of his physical build unusual by the way not something the verses usually do so therefore kabbalah says that when the verse gives a physical description to the first king it's actually giving you a deeper description of what makes a king a king and what are the words it says that he was from his shoulders and upwards, he was taller than any of the people. And in Kabbalah and Hasidus, we get very specific here, which means that his shoulders, which represents the beginning of emotions, was already greater than the head, the power of intellect, perception of everyone else so on one hand we're talking about a king is defined by definite exaltedness the king needs to be exalted a king who wants to be a friend and 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 buddy-buddy that's not the representation of malchut and that's why in Jewish law there's actually specific laws of what a king is or is not allowed to do in front of his subjects. And what drives that law is the verse that says that you shall fear your king. Thus the fear over here is driven not by off with your head but by the exaltedness of the king. An exaltedness which is not just in quantity but it is qualitative. He just has a total different paradigm of reality. One may say that we as humans have the worm's eye view looking up, while the king has the bird's eye view seeing things from above below. And thus, for the perfect example would be Moses, who actually our sages teach us that he had the laws of a king. Even though he wasn't anointed as a king and he's not called King Moses, he's called Moses our teacher, but he has the dynamics of what a king is. So thus you're getting a picture of what it means, a total exalted paradigm of reality in how he sees things. So on the one hand, a king is, you know, a paradigm leap and, and quite, it's just a quantum leap of, of complete separation from anyone else but then on the other hand there's another teaching in kabbalah which says one can only be king over its own species yes my friend sorry to break the news but to have a human tarzan as king of the jungle is kabbalistically impossible we'll soon see that there's a difference between rulership and kingship but to be a true king One can only be a king over his own species, a human over a human. So once again, we're seeing here a a dichotomy, in which on one hand, for him to be king in the truest sense of a king, he needs to be in, in a quantum leap, qualitatively, completely out of reach of anyone else. And yet on the other hand, in the deepest sense, He has to be part of everyone else. And thus, we have to be of one kind with our king for our king to be a king. And then I want to tell you, before we move on, one more concept about king, which I already alluded to by saying that there's a difference between a ruler and a king. So let me read to you a verse that we say in our prayers. It comes from Psalms chapter 145, verse 13, and it says as follows. Your kingdom is a kingdom of all times, and your ruling is in every generation. Now, again, our sages don't allow for poetry. Everything has to be exact. So what does it mean that there's a kingdom and there's a ruling? And what does it mean that the kingdom of all times and the ruling in every generation? And the answer, the answer to this is comes from a different verse. And that verse is from our evening prayers. And it says as follows Umalchuto Beratzon Kiblu Alechem. And willingly, we willingly accepted his sovereignty. A king needs to be anointed a king willingly. So the dimension of a rulership is not accepted willingly, while a king. In Kabbalah, needs to be accepted willingly. Okay, now we'll understand that the prayer is telling us that in the history of mankind, there were generations in which God didn't get to be king and was forced to be a ruler. One such famous generation is the generation of the flood of Noah because he wasn't willingly accepted, thus god so to speak had no choice but to be a ruler god's choice is always to be a king because a king being of one kind and being willingly accepted carries very deep intimacies within the king relationship with the subjects and and thus concerning moses which i told you is called a king we are taught the heart of the king is the heart of the people. That's the type of intimate relationship that really needs to exist with a king versus a ruler slash dictator. Now I want to share with you that ultimately I just revealed to you what is the deepest secret of Rosh Hashanah's journey and goal. It's for us to make a choice whether God is going to be my king or my ruler, that isn't God's choice. It's our choice. Being that a king needs to have a, an, an acceptance willingly, therefore, whether God will be my king or God will be my ruler dictator is up to me. And that's what really Rosh Hashanah is all about. That's what I need to find within myself. Whether I can willingly surrender and lovingly accept him in my king, or, we, or are we going to go for another world around the rodeo where we're going to force God to forcefully be our ruler? Now that we understand what a king is, let's go back to what I meant when I said a Rosh Hashanah of democracy. So let's quote two of the primary principles in democracy when we're talking about having a leader, a president. Of the people, by the people, for the people. Well, we just shared that a king can only be a king over his own kind. Now, we will soon see what that means between God and us. What does it mean that God and us are of one kind? But definitely what we're saying here is that the only way that God could be a king is only if he's one of us, we're one of him, and therefore, ultimately, the relationship of a king, of God being my king, depends upon we being able to say of us and of God that this is of the people, by the people, for the people. And then the next thing I want to share with you is that in democracy, the chief officer has to be duly elected again a king unlike a ruler so really rosh hashanah at its very core is embracing the depths of democracy in god's being our king okay now let's get into it what does it mean god and i of one kind like really so here's what it tells us in god telling us that he wants to be our king god is first and foremost telling us that god and us are of one kind god can never tell us that i want to be your king if we weren't of one kind because we already gave the torah ruling that you can only truly embrace being a king of your own kind and therefore What God is telling us that you, human beings, unlike any other creature, over you, I can be a king and I don't have to be a ruler, but that will be up to you. Now, I want to give you my own interpretation. So take it at face value. I want to give you my own twist to what God said after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. And I quote from Genesis. Chapter 3, verse 22. Now the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, having the ability of knowing right from wrong. And therefore, he says, I need to banish him from the garden. Now, here is my twist. Maybe the deeper meaning here is not that Adam became like one of us, for mankind was always like one of us. Look in Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 27, and I quote, in the image of God, he created him. So it wasn't the tree of knowledge that allowed for Adam to become like one of us. Rather, I would like to suggest, the danger now is that Adam knows that he is like one of us. However, that's not a bad thing. However, he is now bound in the knowledge of good and evil as well. And therefore the verse finishes the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the soil whence he had been taken. So now I want to give my twist to the second part of that verse. It doesn't just say that God said, I'm going to take him out of garden of Eden and that's it. He can't have, he can't be next to the tree of life. That would be too dangerous. No, God's saying I'm sending him out of the garden of Eden for a purpose. And what's the purpose? To till the soil, which soil, from which he had been taken. Here is what I'd like to suggest. Adam and his offspring will now have to till the physicality from which he had been taken. Why? To use our freedom of choice to have good win over evil. Until the very notion of evil within us will be transformed into purity and goodness because we are we have become like god we were created in the image of god ultimately the human power of omnipotence is expressed in our freedom of choice by eating the tree of knowledge we now get connected with evil and thus for the first time Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness because they realized that reproductive organs can be used in a lustful way, less than a godly way. So all of a sudden they became knowledgeable and bonded with evil. Thus God says at this point, I need to send them out to till the soil, till the physicality of where mankind comes from. Deal with our other side. Deal with our animalistic side. Deal with our power of passion, our power of lust, our power of pride before we can once again be safe in being in the Garden of Eden knowing that we have become like God. Now for this, you know, as a rabbi, we usually quote the holy books. But I'm going to quote to you a song by Joan Osborne. And this is the lyrics of the song. What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Now, really, it isn't my job to try to figure out what Osborne did or didn't mean with her lyrics. But I do want to share with you what Rosh Hashanah just told us the lyrics are supposed to be. What if I was one with God, pure and good, just like God, just a divine being in this world, trying to make my way back home. That is the journey of Rosh Hashanah. Acknowledging that, acknowledging that I am of one kind with God, a true divine being, and thus God can tell us with you, I want to be your king, not your ruler. And that is the gift in what God said. And therefore, I want to share with you the dichotomy of the human being. On one hand, we have become like God. What does that mean? What that means is that we have a soul. But on the other hand, we have a body. Now, I want to point out the difference between the human being and all other creatures, living creatures, according to Kabbalah. And I'm going to quote to you the Zohar. So everything was created, soul and body, in one word of God. And God said, let there be. And God said, let the water give out living creatures. Let the earth give out living animals. So what happens is the word of God is what created the body and the life force, the soul of all creatures. Ah, let's turn to the human. First it says that god formed it doesn't say that god said let there be a a, a body let me read you the verse in genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and the lord god formed man of dust from the ground and now concerning the soul it doesn't say "And god said let there be a, a life force within him rather it says and i quote to you he breathed and he breathed into his nostrils the soul of life. Now the holy Zohar says, okay, what is the difference between breathing and talking? And God said, or, and God breathed. And the Zohar says, and I quote, he who blows, blows from within him. And what this means in, what this means is explained in Tanya, that it means, and I quote, from his inwardness and his innermost being. By the way, I I like to get practical. Um, I actually had to take a lung test. And the way you take a lung test is you have to take deep inhales and blow out forcefully into a machine. Interesting enough, the next thing the doctor told me right when I finished the test was, have a seat, you're going to be lightheaded. Now, let me tell you, as a rabbi, I can talk for hours and hours and hours and not get lightheaded. Why is it when I take deep breaths, blowing out forcefully, I have to sit because I'm gonna get lightheaded. That's what the is talking about. Talking comes from an outer level. When it says he breathed into him, his nostrils, what it means is that that came from the essence of God. Thus, on one hand, the human being is truly of one kind with God because he blew from his innermost a piece of him into me and into you. But yet on the other hand, the human being is of the lowest caliber because our body wasn't created by the word of God, but rather through action, God used earth to make us. And thus we have this dichotomy of being the most spiritual of beings and yet being the most physical of beings. And that is the process of Rosh Hashanah. On one hand, God could be our king because we are of one kind. We have a soul on. Un- it's not equal to any other creature. Every other creature, God spoke their soul. To us, God breathed from his inner depths a piece of him into us. But yet on the other hand, we are ultimately possible, it's possible for us to be able to do what no other animal does. And I want to share with you here just quickly what this means. You know, in Kabbalah, and I'm not going to get into the backstory of it, but the reason why pig is not kosher is because pig comes from the other side, the evil side. Now, and so to everything else that's not kosher. Now, Tanya says that the pig never rebelled against God. The pig is exactly what God created it to be. The only creature which has the possibility to tell God, no, I'm not going to be the way you made me to be. I'm going to go against who I am, is actually the human being. And that is because, A, we have the highest power, so the omnipotence of freedom of choice, and yet we have the lowest, our body comes from the earth, from the depths of coarseness of egocentric I. Now we understand the beauty of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is to use both parts of us, which are necessary in order to have a relationship with God in which it's willingly, God be my king. You can be my king because I have a piece of you. We're of one kind. And yet I willingly can ask you to be my king because I have the freedom of choice, because I have a drive to be rebellious and not have any kings. And thus I ask of you, God, body and soul, please be my king. That is the journey and the beauty of Rosh Hashanah. And I just want to add on, not in my notes here, but I want to just add on, the beauty of what I'm saying is, many of us, when we go to synagogue, we become spiritual and only connect with our soul. If only your soul is asking God to be God, that won't work. Because the willingness also needs to come from the physical body. I need to remember clearly, God, I'm asking you to be my God. But by tomorrow morning, I'm probably going to give you an attitude. But know that in the depths of my being, both body and soul, I ultimately want you to be my God. It's going to be a journey. This isn't going to be, zoop, I turned into a good boy. But you should know God, both parts of me, really ultimately want you to intimately be my king. Now, in closing, I want to share with you that because kingship takes from the highest and the lowest, and you need both as we just spoke, I wanna share with you about the power of charity. Why is charity so important before the high holidays, committing during the high holidays? What what is it about charity? And I wanna share with you, the power of charity is that our relationship with money is very interesting. On the one hand, Money, let's just talk about it practically. Money is how we buy our life necessities. The core of living depends on money. On the other hand, money is just money. It's meaningless unless I can do something with it. So it's kind of, I want to take it to the next level. When we chase earning a living, we don't do it half-heartedly. And we don't do it half-wittedly. Ultimately speaking, somewhere in us, we have a very deep connection with money. Some of us enslaved by it, some of us not. But at a deep level, we'd all... Yeah, I shouldn't say we'd all. Some of us would very happily say, you know, let's just not have money. Let's just have a big kibbutz and, you know. But ultimately speaking, Deep within us is this dual connection with money. On one hand, we see in it the possibility of expressing passion with a family. It takes some money to go on a cruise. It takes money to be able to to do things for your kids and for your spouse. And on the other hand, it's the physical thing. What you don't like is when you're sitting by the Shabbos table or you're going on a cruise and your husband is is talking about money. Like, why did you take me on a cruise? What? We could have done this at home. So it seems to be that money has this connection with the human, which is the highest and the lowest. Now, when I take a piece of that money, which I worked passionately and hard to earn with which I can buy for myself necessities and pleasure. And I'm giving that to charity. I'm helping another person. That is a way to say, God, with body and soul, I accept you as the king of all creatures, and thus I help your creation. Now here, I want to finish with an interesting story, because let's be serious. Coronavirus has affected everyone financially in some way or another. Um, You know, practically, emotionally, you know, the part of our relationship with money is not whether we have money or we don't have money, it's very much the fear of we won't have money. So, Corona affected us all. So, I want to share with you a story. There was a great rabbi, and he is called Rabbi Meir Shapiro, and he was the dean of a yeshiva called Chachmei Leblin. The wise ones, the sages of Leblin. Now, what was so outstanding about him was, in the days of old, they didn't have a dormitory and they didn't have a kitchen. When you came to yeshiva, the people that lived there, you would have different days to go to different people to eat. And if they had food, you had food. If they didn't have food, you didn't have food. But that was your day. You're by him, you're today, you're by him there. And he said, how can you study Torah this way? being worried about whether you're going to get to eat or not get to eat. So he's the first one who opened up a dormitory and a kitchen and the yeshiva boys lived in the yeshiva. They ate in the yeshiva. Now, obviously this put a huge financial burden on Rabbi Rabbi Meir Shapiro, which is why we have a plethora of very wise and interesting stories about his fundraising. And, you know, he wasn't like today's uh, fundraisers, you know, uh, all, he was a dean, he was a rabbi, he was a Rosh yeshiva but he also had to raise money. There was nothing else you can do. So I want to share with you one of these cute stories. So he goes one year to, a, uh, to one of the regular givers and he t- tells him, you know, it's, it, this is the time of year you usually help out the yeshiva. Can I ask you to help out the yeshiva? And the guy says, Rabbi, this year I can't give you anything. It's been a really bad year. My business, you know, took a took a turn, and, and I, I just I won't be able to give you this year. So Rabbi Meir Shapiro says, Oh, if that be the case, then according to Jewish law, I'm allowed to divorce you. So I'm divorcing you. Goodbye. This guy is like, divorcing me? First of all, I give him every year. Second of all, what do you mean you're divorcing me? So Rabbi Shapiro knew that this guy would come chasing him to ask him, what are you talking about? And so it happened. He comes, he chases Rabbi Shapiro, and he tells Rabbi Shapiro, um, Rabbi, what exactly do you mean you're divorcing me? He says, I'll tell you. The Torah Deuteronomy says that you're allowed to divorce your wife. And spouse is allowed to get divorced. The Talmud wants to know, okay, but under what circumstances? I mean, can you just tell a wife, I'm done with you, bye. I mean... So there's an argument. There's a three-way argument. One says, no, only if you found something inappropriate by her. Um, But the famous sage Hillel says that if she burnt your food, you can divorce her. Now, Rabbi Meir Shapiro turns around and says, Rabbi Hillel is known to be the sage of kindness and benevolence. What exactly is going on here? 30 years, every day, she cooked your meal. She didn't burn the food. Everything was good. One time she burnt your food, you're allowed to divorce her? I mean, what, what's the Torah saying? Second of all, what does it mean if she burnt his food? She burnt the food. She cooked for the whole family and she burnt it. So what does it mean she burnt his food? Iqdi she lo his food. So Rabbi Shapira tells the, the person, so obviously what it means is that she didn't burn all the food. Some came out good and some came out burnt. So he says like this, some women, which are really righteous, really selfless wives, they'll say, listen, my husband was out working so hard all day and this and that. I'll eat the burnt, let him have the good. That's a righteous person. An ordinary person would say, listen, half burnt, half good for me, half burnt, half good for him. Let's be fair about this. That's an ordinary person. But the Talmud says, the woman who says, (laughs) my food didn't burn, his food burned. A wife that looks that way at the relationship, the Talmud says you can divorce her. He says, now let me tell you what this means. There is a donor who had a bad year. And he says, listen, I can't not give the yeshiva money. They depend upon it. So I'm gonna have to not go on my cruise, not update my car and and, then, you know, buckle down. That's a righteous person. An ordinary person says, listen, I'm not gonna give them the whole money because then I can't do any of the things I do for myself. So I'll give half the loss to me, half the loss to the yeshiva, half what I did make to me and half what I did make to yeshiva. And then Rabbi Shapira looks at him and says, but the donor that tells you, sorry, Rabbi, It's your funds that got burned, but I'll be taking my cruise and I'll be upgrading my car and I'll be doing all my stuff. You should know that the rabbi has a right to say, you, I need to divorce. So the story goes on that he got the message and he gave something to the yeshiva, whatever he could give in that year. Now, I want to share with you, Corona, economy, a lot of stuff. I can't ask any of you to be righteous, cut down all your stuff, but give the charity you give to others. But before Rosh Hashanah, I do ask of you and of myself, let's at least be ordinary. Let us not just say I have to keep up all my habits regardless of how other people are suffering, losing their homes, losing their jobs, not being able to feed their kids, not being able to afford tuition, but I still have to do my trips and everything I can. Let's at least be ordinary because if God is our king, then all his children are our brothers and sisters. And may this, this act, of courageous kindness in difficult times be the merit to get us inscribed into the book of life lishana tova